Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Every once in a while, we like to shake things up a bit at The Lowdown and give you a peek at some other Columbia-related podcasts out there. Today, we're featuring an episode from the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast. The Columbia Energy Exchange is a weekly podcast series by Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy at the School of International and Public Affairs. Each episode explores the most pressing energy issues with top leaders in government, business, academia, and civil society to enhance the global energy policy dialogue. In the episode you're about to hear, host Bill Loveless sits down with a Columbia expert to discuss the effects of the Iran nuclear deal since its implementation in January 2016. The landmark deal with Iran, the U.S., U.K., France, China, Russia, and Germany was developed to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon and lift the nuclear-related economic sanctions on Iran. So, without further ado, let's dive right in. It's been one year since the U.S. and five other nations agreed to lift sanctions on Iran over its nuclear program and six months since their joint comprehensive plan of action was fully implemented. Hello, I'm Bill Loveless with the Columbia Energy Exchange, a podcast from the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. Our guest today is Richard Nephew, the Program Director for Economic Statecraft, Sanctions and Energy Markets at the Center. He's just out with a new paper assessing the implementation of the deal, including a look at what sanctions relief has meant for Iran's oil and banking industries. Before joining the Columbia Center in 2015, Richard served as Principal Deputy Coordinator for Sanctions Policy at the U.S. Department of State. He was also the lead sanctions expert for the U.S. team negotiating with Iran. Richard, welcome back to the Columbia Energy Exchange. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Richard, the Iran deal remains controversial, partly because of the lingering questions over whether it is delivering the benefits provided to all sides. What's your take? Well, I think, you know, ultimately part of the issue here is that the benefits were always going to be different for all sides. For the United States and our partners, the security benefits were immediate. Iran changed its nuclear program and had those changes verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency in January. And from that moment, our primary security concerns about Iran developing nuclear weapons went away. They went from two to three months away from a bomb to now at least a year and, and potentially even longer in some uh, respects. For Iran, their benefits were always going to take longer to manifest because they rely on market actors. You know, they were going to get sanctions removed, which allows them to have the opportunity to do business. But as, as anyone who's ever tried to do business knows, uh, opportunity is not the only thing uh, that you need to have in order to start making uh, real benefits and real profits for your company, or in this case, for your country. So I think the Iranians have certainly gotten what they required in the deal. The United States and its partners froze or terminated the, san the sanctions that were supposed to be frozen or, or terminated. But getting the practical benefits is something that was always going to take longer and, in fact, is taking longer. Well, are there steps the U.S. could and should consider to make it easier for companies to, uh, to take advantage of, of the sanctions relief? I think there are some things the United States and, and, and certainly uh, its, its Treasury Department in particular could do to try and make sanctions relief a lot easier for companies to access. I think there is more guidance that can be put out that would explain how companies should handle the, 
very complicated issue of doing business with Iranian entities that may involve you know, terrorist connections or, or those engaged in illicit activity. I, I think there are also ways that we could uh, look to have changes to the license regime to permit uh, U.S. compliance officers to assist European and Asian companies to figure out ways to deal with U.S. sanctions, to do their business in compliance with U.S. sanctions, and, and to have greater clarity as to what all is involved. But ultimately, I think a lot of what needs to happen is, is first the passage of time and to allow people to have more comfort with what's going on in Iran, with what doing business in Iran looks like. And then I think that the Iranians need more time to reform their own system, to make it more attractive to international business and, and to ensure that it meets international regulatory standards. And, and speaking of those standards, I mean, much of that has to do with financing and uh, and banking regulation and, and uh, you know, sanctions that continue remain in effect from the U.S. side. Talk a little bit about what are some of the banking difficulties, the financial difficulties that Iran has. And for that matter, uh, the company's thinking of doing some business with Iran now. Yeah, the, the first and fu most fundamental issue is there's still a lot of opacity about who is behind various different transactions inside of Iran. There isn't the kind of clarity about who owns companies and what their relationships are and whether or not there are security services, for instance, uh, potentially involved, uh, that there are in other countries. And I think th this is a challenge that happens in a lot of emerging markets, uh, but it's a challenge that in Iran comes with the additional complication of residual sanctions. And, you know, there are sanctions in the United States that still cover doing business with those involved in support for terrorism, violations of human rights, or destabilizing regional activities like supporting uh, Bashar Assad in uh, Syria. And so there is a risk that by doing business with some of these banks and some of these companies, uh, a foreign business, a Japanese, German, uh, Chinese company might find itself doing business with people who are still on U.S. blacklists and therefore find themselves at risk of U.S. sanctions. Well, of course, when it comes uh, to to the, uh, the the relief that uh, that Iran seeks under under these uh, under this agreement, a lot of it has to do with oil, which of course is its primary business. Uh, Iran has stated a goal of averaging some two million barrels a day of exports in 2016. Uh, you know, it's it's making strides, but it's still going to rely on foreign investments. Where where do things stand now in terms of uh, companies, oil companies from around the world, looking at Iran as a potential? Potential investment partner. Well, I think there is still a lot of interest there, especially because you know, compared to other you know sources of, of new oil and gas, Iran is a relatively low cost uh, producer. But that's only in terms of the strict how many dollars will we have to pay to be able to extract how many barrels of oil kind of perspective. But the bigger problem is the reputational issues associated with doing business in Iran with all these different regional problems that still exist, the banking issues, and the fact that it's very hard to get your major European and Asian banks to reconnect with Iranian ones, given the risk that they could be involved in, in some of these various different uh, bad activities. And then, of course, there's last the issue of, of just the plain difficulty of doing business in Iran and the risk of expropriation. Uh, the, the very fact that the Iranian government hasn't figured out how to put out a new Iran petroleum contract, which has been pending for uh, at least two and a half years now, um, is really a case in point. Companies aren't really sure what their protections are going to be if they start investing in Iran. They're not sure what their rights are going to be, and they're not sure what their rewards are going to be from being able to do business uh, in Iran's oil and gas fields now that they're reopened from sanctions. So I, I think there's still a lot of confusion in the uh, international market about what exactly doing business in Iran's oil and gas fields will look like, what are the risks, what are the returns. And until that all gets cleared up, I, I think you're not going to see those kinds of multi-billion dollar investments that the Iranians are so 
so desperate for. Well, you know, of course, Iran's uh, uh, reemergence into the international oil market has occurred at a time when the market is oversupplied, prices are low. Uh, you know, you've written yourself that Iran's oil could not have picked a, a worse time to come back onto the scene. There's estimates of $50 billion in external investment needed to jumpstop the oil sector there. Given what you just said, you think it's unlikely they're going to generate that anytime soon, and they're going to meet their targets for uh, production, increased production and uh, and exports. Yeah, I, I think it's very unlikely they're going to meet those kinds of targets. Um, you know, when you consider the fact that oil prices are low and that generally worldwide investment in, in upstream oil and gas has been falling for a number of years. In fact, the IEA has... Uh, uh, you know, put out a uh, some data showing that it dropped 23% from 2014 to 2015, and a further 15% from 2015 to 2016. And that's that's worldwide. That's not dealing with Iran. And of course, some of that's going to be in your more complicated operating areas. But but I think the bottom line is Iran's part of that. Iran is a complicated place to do business, even for an oil and gas company that sees the benefits of relatively low cost production. And I think the Iranians are going to have an awfully hard time convincing oil and gas companies to come back in with oil prices, with the complex uh, nature of doing business in Iran, with the fact that sanctions could at some point snap back if the Iranians are found to be cheating. And, and this all comes back to the issue of time. More time needs to take place for people to start seeing what the international oil market will look like, what uh, Iran's uh, place in the international oil market will look like, how Iran politically will, will change or not as a result of the deal. And then, of course, what happens here in the United States and what's going to happen in our presidential election in particular, uh, and how that might affect the implementation of the sanctions relief uh, going forward. Just a reminder, I'm here with Richard Nephew, the Program Director for Economic Statecraft, Sanctions and Energy Markets at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. He's just written a paper marking the one-year anniversary of the agreement by the U.S. and five other nations to lift sanctions on Iran over its nuclear program. Richard, are you surprised by the results so far of the agreement? I'm not. You know, I, I really did expect that Iran was going to find it very difficult to reintegrate with the global economy, and I thought that Iran was going to take some some time uh, for it to be able to start reestablishing those ties that have been lost. And, and certainly that's because the market share that Iran once had uh, has gone other places. And it's gone other places that at this point are, are oversupplied from the perspective of, of direct, you know, what oil is available on the market. And the fact that investment, again, is, is down in general because of, of oil prices being where they are. And the fact that the Iranians were always going to be stymied by their own foreign policies and security policies. So I, I'm not surprised at what what Iran's uh, dealing with. I, I think that the more difficult uh, situation that we have is that uh, a lot of Iran's population, and certainly its, its uh, educated business class, uh, are surprised uh, because they had been led to believe by their government that they were going to get real benefits very, very quickly. And I think the, the rising expectations in Iran didn't match reality, and they certainly didn't match what Iran's government was able to deliver in the first six months of the deal. That has got the real risk of contributing to pretty uh, unpleasant developments in Iran if those uh, uh, expectations continue to be unmet. You know, we talked of the uh, the uh, difficulties for companies' foreign investment in Iran. Uh, Boeing uh, recently signed a memorandum of understanding with Iran for 80 planes worth some $17.6 billion. 
that deal's not done yet, but I mean, what does that say of this climate for investment in Iran? Well, I think it says that, you know, the United States is going to make sure that Iran has all the opportunity it can to take advantage of the sanctions relief that it purchased with its nuclear concessions. And I think, you know, you can see the Boeing deal and the fact that Boeing was able to get permission and, in fact, support from the executive branch of the U.S. government to go forward with the deal as an indication that this deal is meaningful to the United States and that the Obama administration is going to make it happen. But I think the other uh, reality is that the deal is far from done. Uh, the financing and and how those relationships are going to be built has, has yet to be uh, you know, fully fleshed out. And, and the simple reality is that Boeing is a massive company with a massive compliance uh, uh, operation and with the benefit of being able to look in the nuclear deal itself and see you know, almost its name written next to a provision of sanctions relief. So for Boeing, it was fairly straightforward to move forward with implementation once they decided that they wanted to do so. For a lot of these companies uh, who, who don't have the benefit of a clear license from the U.S. government or who don't have uh, you know, very clear language in the nuclear deal itself saying that they're supposed to be part of the sanctions relief, I, I think it's simply uh, a lot more difficult to take this lesson uh, and, and move it forward themselves. You know, it's, uh, the, the agreement's been controversial uh, from the beginning. And, and of course, we're in a, an election year in the United States. What's in store for the next president? when it comes to the Iran agreement? Well, I think, you know, if you were, you know, looking at any kind of normal election year, they would face a situation where they come into office in January of 2017 with an Iran deal that's working on the security side. You know, the nuclear provisions are being implemented fully. There are probably no indications of any Iranian cheating. The economic side is starting to pick up, but it's still somewhat lagging. And so the real complication is, how do you keep progress moving forward on the deal, given all these other problems that you've got with Iran, with the fact that they're involved in supporting uh, Hezbollah, Assad, violations of human rights at home, uh, launching of ballistic missiles? And, and certainly there are lots of people, both in the region and beyond, who, who still have a lot of concerns with those activities uh, coming out of the Iranians. And so I think the biggest challenge for that new president will be, how do I keep the good, you know, keep the benefits that we get from the nuclear deal uh, going, while at the same time responding to all these other challenges? Now, of course, that's an a normal election year. And I think the fact that uh, we have uh, one uh, presidential candidate who has said he will uh, rip up the nuclear deal on day one, and then, uh, by the way, on the other side of his mouth saying that maybe he wouldn't and maybe he'd renegotiate a better one, means that there is a lot more uh, question about whether or not the Iranians will continue to believe that the United States is going to stand behind its word. And I think that raises some pretty serious questions about the longevity of the deal should Donald Trump become the next president of the United States. So there's a lot that's still very delicate about this entire situation. Absolutely. And I, I, in fact, think that this situation is going to remain delicate for at least the next year. We've got the U.S. presidential election in November. We have the inauguration in January. We have the next Iranian presidential election in June of 2017. And, and all of those political developments are happening at the same time we have Brexit, at the same time we have uh, uh, further developments in the European Union, at the same time we've got other elections that are going to doubtless come up. And so I think there's always going to be some degree of uncertainty in, in this kind of very complex 
complex, multi-tiered, multi-party agreement. The, the real question is whether or not everybody continues to see enough benefit securing the economic side to keep things going. And, and thus far, I'm optimistic. I don't think that anybody's going to get exactly what they wanted. We certainly in the United States will still have a security problem in terms of support for terrorism and uh, you know, involvement with Assad and so forth. The Iranians will not get perfect economic integration with the rest of the world, but, but they're going to get something too. And I think as long as everybody's seen some benefits, we've got a platform to build for the next step, which in my view needs to be negotiations with the Iranians dealing with a whole host of other regional issues. You can hear more interviews about current energy issues and trends by subscribing to the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast through their website at energypolicy.columbia.edu or through iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. Thank you.